The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. If you're a chocoholic, I've got some terrible news. I really do. Cocoa futures, in other words, what the market believes cocoa will cost in the future, is going for a sixth straight record uh, in a row this afternoon. Prices are poised to mark another settlement at their highest in more than 46 years. And it's because cocoa from West Africa is not in great supply and traders are worried that a short production here because of El Nino and other issues is going to keep the price of cocoa high. So brace yourself. Smaller chocolate bars, uh, more expensive chocolate bars perhaps, but certainly the cocoa price is going through the roof at the moment. The Rand also in retreat this afternoon. Um, we've seen very, very strong jobs numbers in the United States. That should indicate uh, the opportunity to, um, to to really try and, I don't know, relieve pressure on the, on the global economy, but it doesn't. It just means interest rates to stay higher for longer. Um, and that, therefore, puts pressure on the rand once again so deeply frustrating we'll catch up with professor raymond parsons this evening we'll talk about the the environment in in which we live and why it is that as south africans we keep making terrible policy decisions and then we spend years navel gazing about those uh, the, the outcomes and the results of our poor policy decisions and we don't seem to learn rather, from those poor policy decisions. Uh, We'll also talk about forecasts. We'll also look at um, the enthusiasm for multi-choice and uh, Canal Plus, who desperately wants to buy it. But market enthusiasm for that deal is falling flat. And then on our best bits uh, this evening, a chat, including a discussion with Jonathan Oppenheimer, which I found very, very interesting. Uh, He was our shapeshifter on Wednesday evening. I'm curious as to what you think of the chat that we had. Give us a shout this evening on 011-8830702. You can hit us up on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, at Bruce Business, or you can WhatsApp voice notes to 072-702-1702. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. When things go wrong in your business, and don't lie, they do. Things do go wrong. It's just the nature of the world. But when things do go wrong in your business, what do you do? You certainly don't ignore them. Uh, Do you focus more on what's working and say, well, that's not working over there, but this is working here, so let's focus here? Well, of course not. No, you make it your business to figure out what's going wrong so you can fix it and hopefully in future preempt it to stop things from going wrong. Interesting thoughts across my desk today from Professor Raymond Parsons at Northwest University about how South Africa can get more things right the first time round rather than going into this vortex of negativity and getting a a downward spiral. And I suppose the only way, Raymond Parsons, is to tackle things head on, preferably before things go wrong, to set up a policy environment that is more conducive to getting better outcomes. Yes, good evening to you, Bruce. I think the important point now is that it's a good moment with with an election coming, but we are going to look beyond the election and say whatever the outcome, what is the economic agenda that will give us a, a bigger, stronger and better economy? And what I try to identify here is can we learn from our past mistakes? And one of the issues has been when you look 
at the multiplicity of advisory structures that in fact do exist, how is it possible that we are sitting with a situation at the moment where there's a high level of economic and policy uncertainty, which is bedeviling economic growth and investment? So how can we do better in, in the future? In other words, how can we, as you put it, get more things right the first time round? Because it's clear that, that the risk and the cost of the mistakes we've made so far have been quite high. So I think what's important now is how do we, in particular, look at the, at the uncertainty level with which business and consumers are being faced, and how can we, when we look beyond the election, because there's not much we can do between now and May, is that going to be the time of the election, how do we then boost investor and consumer confidence by saying there are things we can do, there are some solutions hidden in plain sight, which we can mobilize after the election in order to get more things right the first time. Because policy certainty is now certainly going to be a very important factor that will challenge any new, any new government after the election. I was astounded by one particular number, one number in particular. Uh, you quote UNISA's Professor Joe Ansi van Veik saying President Sir Ramaphosa has in the past five years created 110 commissions, advisory councils, funds, initiatives, program summits, task forces, war rooms, and uh, to try and figure out what went wrong. So we, we make decisions, we do things, we go down a particular avenue, it doesn't work out, we keep flogging the dead horse, sorry SPCA, um, we keep flogging the dead horse, um, and the and then we go, oh, it went terribly wrong, well let's find out why it went wrong. If we made better decisions up front, well we would have fewer need to do post-mortems on these things. Well I think the point that I've tried to make uh, uh, in, in my article yesterday was really to, to hone in on two important institutions or mechanisms that could cut through a lot of the noise of the, the, the diffused advice, some of it quite good, but nonetheless emanating from a multiplicity of institutions. The first was that at least a decade ago, the government committed itself to the National Development Plan and there have been various offshoots since then. It's been updated, and the National Planning Commission revised it recently and pointed out the extent to which we have fallen short of the socioeconomic targets to which we are committed, and in particular, lifted out the immediate priority of reducing policy uncertainty in order to improve the chances of being able to get those targets. But I'm adding, secondly, there was also a committed, there was also a commitment since 2007 by government that there's an instrument called a socio-economic assessment method. In other words, when you're thinking of a law or a regulation, and this was supported by 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 the National Development Plan originally as well, they said all regulations should be submitted to this test in advance, where you look at all the inputs and you say. How cost-effective is this? Who else is doing this? Are we duplicating what someone else is doing? Will it achieve what it ought to achieve? So I think the important point here is I've tried to identify the fact that we, we don't need to reinvent any more wheels of, of consultation. What we need to do is to say, go back to the fundamentals, 
of, of our national development plan, tell the nation that's what we are indeed committed to. It will be an overriding plan which will inform all our future decisions, whoever runs the country uh, after May. In any case, the ANC will still be playing a very big role in, in that. And secondly, we will use this instrument of the socioeconomic assessment more vigorously in order to avoid making mistakes. And, in, to, in, and to, to that extent, I'm saying that many of the solutions we need after the election are lying hidden in plain sight. We must just mobilize them more effectively so as to send a, a far better message of policy certainty and confidence, not only to the business community and investors and, and, and consumers, but to put what we want to do with our economy, good economics in hard times, on a far better basis in the years ahead. Thank you very much, Professor Raymond Parsons. What a fascinating insight this evening. Economist and professor at Northwest University Business School. One of the quotes comes from Professor Anthony Butler at UCT, who wrote a very good biography of Sir Ramaphosa um, in the run-up to his presidency. And he, he just said, Ramaphosa may soon need an advisory council to help him steer between conflicting diagnoses. So another council to help you analyze the analysis. Because, yeah, it's... Um, there are words for it. It's a storm of of indecision. And when ideology, when and and political ambition drives your policy choices and your decision making, like NHI at all costs. Yes, NHI is critical. NHI is an important policy decision. Absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. But when it's not been well drafted, costed or considered, and you're going to say, oh, you know what? It's a bit like saying, well, we'll reattach to the wings if they come off mid-flight. You're asking for trouble. You really are. Thank you, Raymond Parsons, very much indeed. Uh, another topic that has got our attention this evening on our, our money show uh, explainer tonight uh, is with Dr. Azar Jameen. He joins us in just a moment. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. APSA's a registered FSP. So what is the point of forecasting if the forecasting is so often wrong? And why, if forecasts are so unreliable, why do we still rely on forecasts? It was an interesting piece uh, by Tim Cohen in Daily Maverick. So we've got Dr. Azar Jameen joining us this evening, Director and Chief Economist at Econometrics. Azar, welcome to The Money Show. Why is it that forecasts are so appallingly wrong most of the time? I think uh, to suggest that they are appallingly wrong most of the time is an overstatement. Uh, Tim Cohen was looking and analyzing numbers that incorporated the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent recovery. And there were massive distortions in uh, the numbers that emerged from that period. We are probably still seeing those distortions as evidence from this afternoon's amazingly strong jobs uh, creations numbers uh, in the United States. The fact is that economics is not a science, a natural science. It is a behavioral science. And it depends very much on uh, psychology, human psychology, and of course on a whole lot of external 
uh, factors, independent variables, over which forecasters have very little uh, control and are, are unable to really get to grips with them all the time. So they do what they can do best given the assumptions that they make at a particular time, but those assumptions can get hugely uh, distorted by events as they transpire. I mean, the most recent one that uh, struck me is how we were terrified of of food inflation a few months ago, one of the main reasons being because we were scared that El Nino uh, was going to hit us and we were going to have a very dry summer and food prices would rocket as a consequence because of shortages. And instead, we see that the El Nino phenomenon hasn't actually manifested itself as predicted and that's not the economist's fault they for that matter it's the climatologist's fault but uh, you know to c- criticize macroeconomists for making that mistake uh, i think is uh, an overstatement so what should we be doing with forecasts then azar should we be i mean i, I don't, you, you can't be up you know you can't be revising your data each and every single day i don't think that's reasonable because there are a billion data points from which to draw on any uh, on any day of the week how then do we ensure that the, the data is more reliable the data sources we use are more reliable that the forecasts become more reliable well, all we can do is try and ensure that the data sources uh, that we get do become increasingly reliable. And the second point that we have to try and do is to uh, try and use these forecasts as a benchmark for planning in the future, uh, not to treat them as absolute gospel to the nearest decimal point, but to give an impression to rely on them to give an impression of the overall environment that we're going to face and uh, i mean the classic uh, example right now is forecasting the growth of the south african economy over the last year and for the next couple of years and everyone uh, you know most of the forecasts yes they move around by a number of decimal points but the general picture is that the South African economy is underperforming the rest of the world and is likely to grow at somewhere between zero and one and a half percent per annum, uh, has been doing so and will continue to do so for a couple of years. And I think that is quite useful because uh, um, businesses can plan on there being no massive boom and no major collapse in the economy. And uh, that is a source of stability, I would think. Yeah, and it, but it just it's, there's so much emphasis placed on forecasts because you've got to place your assumptions on something, I suppose. Um, and you know, uh, Tim's quite critical of the IMF, saying for the last you know several years the IMF keeps getting it wrong and getting it wrong. And they did a very unusual thing this week, where they were in South Africa. The chief economist of the IMF was in South Africa and delivering their global forecast from South Africa. Tim's analysis of that is well, they need to improve their processes in terms of getting South Africa more. Accurate and their their analysis of South Africa more accurate. Um, what is what is your assessment of that? You know, you've got to realise also that many of the analysts that work for the IMF are sitting in Washington. Uh, they, yeah. Yes, they've got their offices domestically, but the there is a long time period that is needed for the information to flow from its source all the way through to the analysis and be uh, churned by the models and then 
be uh, produced and then integrate, be integrated into all the other forecasts from every other country that the IMF pursues. And by the time the IMF actually produces its forecasts, it often relates to circumstances that existed uh, up to two or three months prior to the actual date at which those numbers are forecast. So what I'm suggesting is if we could simultaneously get all those processes going right now, we would probably have different forecasts from the IMF than those that were released uh, 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 earlier this week. But, uh, you know, that's part of the process. And all I would submit is that uh, businesses and central banks and other institutions would not be referring continuously to those numbers if they didn't feel that there was some use in utilizing those numbers. Dr. Zajamin, thank you for explaining. Uh, Director and Chief Economist at Econometrics. The Money Show. The Markets. Well, yeah, we had uh, Raymond Parsons uh, talk to, uh, to the big jobs numbers out of the United States. And I've been talking recently about the mixed signals that we're getting out of the United States, particularly with so many tech companies cutting tens of thousands of jobs. But it's surprising that the U.S. economy is still, official data showing, creating 300-odd thousand jobs every month. The consequence of us, uh, for us is, as the Americans keep creating jobs, it shows that the American economy is buoyant. It shows um, that uh, there is still inflationary pressure in the system. And uh, therefore, the analysis, Patrick Matidi, the head of equities at Alawani Capital Partners, on the world's longest-run boring story, is that interest rates stay higher for longer. Um, and I suppose that does explain today's round weakness. Yeah, good evening, Bruce. Um, in, indeed, I mean, those numbers uh, were closely watched and they came out way higher than expected. I think consensus was about 180,000, so at about 360 or so, almost twice what was expected. We did see, indeed, you know, the dollar remaining very strong, uh, basically implying that, um, you know, the, the higher yields, the dollar will stay high for longer, uh, as underpinned by high interest rates. But I guess also, you know, if you look at uh, that economy, we'll have to see what the rest of the inflation basket is looking like because uh, that uh, jobs number came with a very strong uh, wage and growth number, implying that indeed there could still be, you know, underlying inflationary pressures. So we'll have to see what the Fed does, you know, what uh, the next inflation number will look like. And uh, currently it implies that uh, the March cuts uh, that were penciled in, uh, those unfortunately have to be pushed out to perhaps May, if not a bit later in the year. Now, and that's the thing about, again, the unreliability of the data sets, because as Azar Jameen has just explained it so beautifully, this isn't, an, you know, this isn't a, a, a science science, it's a social science. It is a science of human behavior question, and uh, humans are behaving contrary <laughs> to what expectations were. I'm, I'm seeing, looking about human reactions, the human reaction to the multi-choice, the potential multi-choice deal, the um, offer that has been put on the table by Francis Canal Plus for a multi-choice at 105 rand a share. There was a quite a lot of exuberance. We went to 95 rand yesterday. Today, back down below 91. And it suggests that the market is not 100% convinced that this is a deal that's going to go over the line. Yeah, I think the, 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 the concerns stem from the regulatory health uh, that they manage to overcome. Uh, so currently, you know, there's a piece of regulation from Incasa that precludes, you know, control and ownership of uh, media assets by foreigners. So we'll have to see how Canal Plus is able to navigate you know, through that. 
from the statements and interviews uh, from the Canal Plus side, it, uh, you know, it would imply that they, have, they are aware of those hurdles and therefore they have a solution. But, you know, we, we know I mean, this is a global phenomenon. You know, governments don't like, you know, the key media assets sitting with the foreigners. And, and so we'll have to see if uh, indeed there is uh, a way around that from the South African point of view. I was looking at results from oil companies this week, and there have been a whole swathe of oil company results. And these companies are printing so much money. They're paying massive dividends, huge bonuses to executives. And then I look at Little Sassel, and Little Sassel is just its going glug, 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 glug. And that's not because you're putting fuel in the tank. It's because the share price is going glug, 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 glug. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, Sassel has, you know, if we use their sort of market lingo, has derated quite significantly. So what uh, the market is willing to pay for, for the earnings, you know, it's no longer the same as perhaps, you know, a few years ago. And that's largely because of all the other risks, you know, that are now engulfed that company, all to do with, I guess, uh, the whole ESG uh, sort of a new uh, sort of a focus and their ability to can, you know, manage down debt and still, you know, cut emissions and have the capital for that. So from an earnings point of view, yes, they've not had a great time, uh, but uh, over and above that, I think a market sentiment uh, towards that company uh, has unfortunately waned uh, quite significantly over the last couple of years. Most certainly has. Thank you, Patrick Matidi, Head of Equities at Alawani Capital Partners this evening on a day with the U.S. created and well, revealed that in January it created 353,000 jobs. Astonishing number. Our all-share index pulled back another 87 points and the currency fell quite sharply on that expectation that global interest rates stay, yes, say it with me, higher for longer. Coming up after Eyewitness News, of course, we play the Brutal Biz Quiz, which is always a bit of fun on a Friday. Uh, We will also be talking to a reformed lawyer, our second in two weeks. This time, it's Kristen McClarty, who's a printmaker, but she spent nine years in the purgatory of corporate law before going into printmaking. Not ordinary printmaking. It is printmaking, uh, which is, I think, uh, described as eco-printmaking. We'll find out the difference between printmaking and eco-printmaking and what was it that drove Kristen McCarthy uh, from the clutches of the corporate sector and into making fabrics from the mountain. Literally. That's what she does. And it's not my accent, it's just Cape Town. It's a very Cape Town story, and it's a lovely tale. Looking forward to catching up on that one, but first to very latest Eyewitness News. Now at half past six, here's Marky Molapo. 7.02. Bruce is on The Money Show. We are this evening going to be talking to Kristen McClarty. Kristen is a printmaker and a very good printmaker as well. Uh, in a previous life, she was a corporate lawyer. But we don't hold those sorts of things against people. We we celebrate their close calls and their narrow escapes. We'll chat to her in just a second. Also, this evening, what the Brutal Biz Quiz. Uh, lots of fabulous questions for you. You should be well prepared for the Brutal Biz Quiz this evening. There's a lot of news about. And, of course, we draw from the week's news flow uh, as to how we shall torture you uh, at about 10 to 7 this this evening and then the best bits of the money show that goes on between seven and eight including a fabulous discussion that we had with jonathan oppenheimer our shapeshifter on wednesday evening and i, I really found a lot of what he had to say and we were talking just about 
the importance of wealthy families and their role in society in terms of investing in the future and taking the capital that they generate from their economic activity over generations and how they apply it. Now, there's some people who simply don't um, uh, do the right thing, if you like, and then they are roundly criticized. Thomas Piketty, in his book Capital in the 21st Century, was massively dismissive of the billionaire classes, saying, you know what, just tax them. Uh, and whenever this issue comes up about taxing the rich, it's a very popular, populist and easy-sounding solution. Some people even go to those sorts of protests with signs like, eat the rich. And it's a, a natural response if you feel left out on the periphery of the economy. It's absolutely, um, a, 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 I think, a legitimate sentiment to have. But when you dig a little bit deeper and you look and you'll hear from Jonathan Oppenheimer later on about the family philosophy about investing for profit, yes, but investing also for the long term to grow the environment because you cannot survive long term in deeply dysfunctional environments. It's just not feasible to do so because eventually something breaks in the system. So, yeah, it's a fascinating and really um, good conversation. And I hope that you, if you can't make it the best bits this evening, get it on the, get it on the podcast. It really is important that you get a sense of it, please, with us this evening. The Money Show. The Friday File. The Friday File. Kristen McClarty is a printmaker, and she's very good at it. She is the founder of a business called Ignorni. It's not just any kind of printmaking, but eco-printmaking. Kristen, what is the difference between printmaking and eco-printmaking, please? Hello, Bruce and the listeners. Printmaking generally um, refers to the traditional techniques of printmaking, for example, woodcut, which is something that I also do. And when we talk about eco-printmaking, we're referring specifically to making a mark on a surface that has been made directly from a plant and using the pigments in the plant um, to make the mark on the surface rather than using any ink or chemical to, to transfer a mark really onto the surface. So, I mean, you, you use the, the wonderful Feinbos of the Western Cape as a, a resource here. How does that color transfer happen then? How do the marks transfer and how permanent are they? In a world where we're so used to chemical inks and chemical processes, those natural pigments, how, how do you ensure that they have, dare I say, stickability? Bruce, if we can just, if we just, can just go back um, a few steps, the, many of the um, pigments and colors that have been used over centuries have been based on plant pigments. So this is a derivation of that um, that art or that uh, practice. And in essence, inside each cell of the plant and the leaves of the plant, there are tannins and proteins, and each of those carry a color innate, innate in the in the cells. And the eco-printing process really allows the cell walls to break down and the pigment to be transferred directly from the plant onto a surface. And in my case, I uh, transfer that onto a fabric or a paper textile or a paper. And um, I would say that the longevity of the print is probably the same as any other print, um, although not the same as acrylic because because of course that's plastic but in essence it is a a long-term print and prints stay on fabric for a very long time yeah i was i was looking as long as we need 
Mm. I was stalking you on the internet, as I do to my prospective guests, uh-huh. um, and I thought to myself, she must have gone to, to, I don't know, to a proper university like Rhodes and gone to the fine art department and spent many years studying fine art. But actually, your your background is in corporate law, which is this wonderful juxtaposition right. between. Right. But it's, where does the artistry come from? Well, I have always made art and I come from a family who were makers, um, besides also being lawyers and whatnot. And uh, those skills that I learned as a child were just transferred to to what I do as an adult. And adding to that is my love for plants and my interest in plants and my environment. And all of those aspects have come together to create an opportunity to use the pigments and the plants that's around me to make something that's beautiful and bespoke and holds a memory of a place. And the wonderful connection, therefore, between you grew up in KZM, but you live obviously in Cape Town, and, and the connection, and it's a much more intimate connection, I would think, between a piece of art where somebody has sat with a with an acrylic and done a you know, done a pretty picture, and that's nice. But when you're taking the the raw material from one of the finest botanical kingdoms in the world, and you're taking that and transferring it to a surface and creating images of the place, um, it, it it does take on a, a far higher connection, I would think. Yes, it is. It's, it speaks of a very intimate connection to a time and place because the prints that I'm making um, today can't be made tomorrow or next week because I'm uh, recording the exact status of, for instance, Blombos when it's about to go into bloom at the moment and pigment is very high in the little buds. And if I make a print today versus if I make a print in a month's time, that print will be completely different because I'm just recording today and that's a special thing. It's a, it's about uh, placing a memory of a time and a space onto a surface and, and recording that for prosperity. And it can obviously be used for more conceptual um, applications. For instance, I do use a natural mark making for exhibition work and I would, for instance, record a period of time an example would be a cloth that I've made using onion skins, which are the residue of my cooking over a period of time. And that recorded the time from when my kids were in the house to when they moved out to varsity. So it was called dinner oh. for four, three, two, one. Yes. Oh, and, and awful. <laughs> so you can use, you can use the application um, beyond just recording the plant onto the cloth. Yes. No, and again, it takes on such a, such a deeper meaning as well. But dinner four, three, two, one breaks my blooming heart. It really does. But but how much of it is art, and how much of it, and how much of it is science? Because there's a huge amount of scientific exploration that's happening here, and you must be experimenting late into the night. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of it is science and I haven't um, done a biology degree. I've done a law degree. But what I have got is a curious mind and an ability to record what I do. And every print that I make, I record, for instance, the strength of the mordant that I'm using, which is also homemade. I, I record the, the, the place that I took the plants from, how long I um, 
either steamed or boiled the the bundle of cloth for. And in doing so, I have produced a library or journal of information which I can go back to, in essence, to recreate a, a, a print, for instance. But in doing so, I'm also building up material, building up information that maybe can be used um, in another time or place, maybe by a different person to form a basis of a of a thesis or something. Uh, I've, got, I've got this image, and forgive my image, but I've got the image of you sort of, I don't know, going mm-hmm. running across the mountain barefoot with a hemp sack across one shoulder and a pair of garden shears and the other sort of helping yourself to plant life <laughs> throughout the uh, throughout the uh, biosphere. What, what are you allowed to do and not allowed to do? Are there places where you are allowed to harvest and not allowed to harvest, or have I just got you into trouble? I, 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 well, first of all, I forage very little, and I don't forage in any... Um, parks or anything it's really mainly taken from the edges of gardens um maybe the small little green belt where i have a walk and that sort of thing and then some of the more exotic plants which i do also use i take more freely because they probably shouldn't be there in any event and um, i combine the 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 exotic with the fanbos and in that way have enough pigment to make the marks but Really, it's it's on a very small scale. It's not a it's not a major harvesting process that's going on to produce the marks. Kristen, it's a lovely, lovely uh, concept that you've created, again, unique in the world, bringing science and art and a bit of law, I'm sure, into it as well. You'll have tight contracts. How do you reach your market? How do you get people to find your products? How do you get them to connect with you? Well, when I first started doing it, I'd already been practicing art for some time. So I introduced the natural mark making into my art practice. So I already had a market in a way or a viewership or people that are interested. And um, when I first produced, for instance, pieces on silk or hemp silk, there was a spark of interest. I put it on social media. People saw what they wanted to buy it. And um, following from that, I did a couple of interesting projects. For instance, I collaborated with a, um, with a designer, Nadia Fonstein, and we put out a collection of, of garments based on uh, fabric that had been eco-printed. And that got a huge amount of publicity. And really, it just that goes from one to the next. You just establish yourself in the market and... Uh, work every day at it and continue to 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 develop your work and continue to do things that other people are not doing and it it attracts the interest of people and they they want that they want that that they want that once of peace they want something that nobody else has they want yeah that's on their bed or they want to wear that on their wedding dress or want to wear it around their neck and it's just and it's an aspirational thing. People would like something that nobody else has. Exactly. And it well done to you, just Kristen. Goes from Thank there. you very much indeed. Yeah, Kristen McClarty, printmaker this evening, but not just summer printmaker. Printmaker, printmaker. Uh, make us a match. A brutal biz quiz coming up in just a moment. In the world of motor racing, Lewis Hamilton. You've heard of him. He drives around circuits very, very quickly, just in case you're wondering who he is. He's a seven times world champion. He's leaving Mercedes Benz to go where? 
Where is Lewis Hamilton going? Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011830702. And let's play the Brutal Biz Quiz this Friday night. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Where's Lewis Hamilton going? Just round the corner and back again and back again and back again and back again for like 80 laps. Ah, Maurice in Cape Town. Um, where is Lewis Hamilton going other than in circles? Uh, are you asking me? Sorry. I am Maurice. If you, if you are Maurice, oh, okay. if you are from Cape Town, uh, there you yes. are. Hello. Yes, he's going to Ferrari. He's going to Ferrari. Absolutely right. He's going to replace Carlos Sainz. It's a shock move, especially for Carlos Sainz. Uh, he's got a two-year contract with Mercedes. It expires at the end of 2025. He'll spend just one more season, however, with the team. Uh, Elliot Salco founded a technology company that's gone into business rescue this week. What is the name of the company? Um, Ellie's. Ellie's is absolutely right. That's very good. Uh, the company was founded in 1979 by Ellie Salco. He died, unfortunately, in 2021. But, yeah, it's one of the great tragedies, of course, of the listings boom that these great family businesses, unfortunately, um, many of them have come unstuck in the listed environment. Um, DSTV is in the crosshairs of which international um, content business that wants to take out the remaining shares that it doesn't already own in DSTV. Um, Canal Plus. Canal Plus, and even pronounced properly, you get two points for that one. Uh, not that we give points where, nor do they matter. Um, then, uh, who is, there's a former deputy president who's been appointed to the board of Mercedes-Benz South Africa, which former South African deputy president has been uh, appointed to the board? Mm. Sorry, now mm. I don't know that. You don't know that, Maurice. Well, that's a great pity because we have to say farewell to you. Uh, Becky, which former deputy president is joining the board of Mercedes-Benz South Africa? Uh, Becky? Yes, Becky. Which which former deputy president oh, joining the board Pumzile. of Mercedes-Benz South Africa? Pumzile. Mlambo Nuka. She's very good, by the way. They're not ever going to read what she's thinking. Um, I, I gave a talk last year, and she was sitting three rows from the front, and I was being very unkind about policy making and politics in South Africa. And there was one particular joke that the audience went... <gasps> And there was this moment of silence where all eyes in this massive auditorium of about 1,500 people turned to Pumzile and she just sat there stony-faced. I was very impressed. <laughs> she didn't punch me either, which I was grateful for. But yes, Pumzile Mlambo Nuka is the um, former deputy president who is joining the board of uh, the board of Mercedes-Benz South Africa. There is a startup that is uh, this week connected to Elon Musk because other people have done this before. Um, but there's a startup that has put its first implants into a human brain this week. What is the name of the Elon Musk linked startup that has done this? Oh, I'll have to go on that one. I read it somewhere, but it's not coming to my mind. Sorry, Bruce. 
Oh, your neurons aren't firing on that particular front this evening, Becky. Thank you. King in Pretoria, Your Majesty, what is the name of the Elon Musk-linked company that has put a, an implant into a human brain this week? Uh, yeah, no, that one, I don't think I'm going to get it right. <laughs> oh, again, the neurons not connecting. Clues there everywhere. Lail? Hello, Bruce. I do believe that what Neuralink. It is Neuralink. Lael has been paying attention. Absolutely right. The first human patient to receive an implant from Neuralink happened on Sunday and, according to Elon Musk, is recovering well. This one's a little bit, this is a little bit trickier. Um, Sundam wants to buy the business of it started out in 1913 as the burial society for members of the south african police it's an insurance business nowadays um, it is offering six and a half billion rand to buy which insurance business that started out as the burial society for the police that would be Esupol. oh lael go away you're too good at this game. <laughs> well done to you, Lael. You are the wizard of the Brutal Biz Quiz this evening. I really didn't expect anybody to get that. Well done to you, Lael. That's fabulous. I really am um, chuffed about that. Uh, well done, producers. Um, those were great questions. Uh, the Neuralink one stumped a few people, but Asupol. Um, it's, yeah, look, it's visible. It's around. People know about Asupol, but it's not a household name. Um, yeah, Sunlam says uh, if, the deeds, uh, if the deal gets regulatory approvals, then it will keep trading under its name, Asupol, and it goes all the way to 1913 as a burial society for members of the police. Nowadays, of course, a fully-fledged life insurer. Coming up after Eyewitness News, which is in a moment or two, I know that you are champing at the bit to get your latest Eyewitness News. Uh, we will bring you the best bits of the money show from the week that has been, including a wonderful chat with Warren, uh, including a wonderful chat with the fourth generation of Oppenheimers in South Africa. First came Ernest, then came Harry, then came Nicky, and now Jonathan Oppenheimer and his philosophy, his view on the world and why he applies capital the way he does and what happens to the Oppenheimer billions that weren't donated as part of, of course, the uh, the COVID crisis and other issues. But some very strong views and some interesting views. Please do stay tuned if you missed it. And if you do miss it again, find it in the podcast. It comes up after Eyewitness News now at 7. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.